Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Well, hello again. Hope you and yours are well. Our producer engineer is Dave Armbruster, and you're listening to Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. And we launched our show three weeks ago. We had Urban Meyer right before he became the head coach of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Last week, very entertaining show in Brian Billick. And this week, one of the great quarterbacks in the history of the NFL. Longtime Dallas Cowboy Troy Aikman. You know, when I filled in for uh, Joe Buck for longer than a decade on Fox and Joe would go do the baseball playoffs in the World Series, I had the pleasure to announce many, many games with Troy Aikman. I can tell you that maybe more so than anyone I've ever met, he is meticulously prepared. At the same time, he's the ultimate grinder. But he's also a really good man with a really good heart. We're going to talk about his life as a kid, moving from California to Oklahoma, becoming a football star, and raising two daughters by himself. We'll also preview this week's NFC Championship game. It's Troy Aikman coming up. This is Dialed In. Living with Change is a nonprofit organization supporting transgender youth and their families. Transgender youth face higher rates of violence, victimization, substance abuse, suicide risk, and homelessness, but have few resources to help deal with those issues. To combat those numbers and in partnership with Cincinnati's Children's Hospital, LWC created with Living with Change Center for Gender Health serving more transgender patients and families than any other center in the Midwest. For more, please log on to livingwithchange.org. Since 1882, Children's Home of Northern Kentucky has been a lifeline for children and families in crisis. Now known as CHNK Behavioral Health, its team of doctors, nurses, and therapists impacts nearly 4,000 kids and families every year. An array of mental health services, including counseling, addiction treatment, and psychiatric residential care. CHNK also continues to care for abused and neglected youth who are in the state's custody. Right now, CHNK Behavioral Health is offering a free 10-minute conversation with a clinical therapist to help families dealing with the increased pressures caused by the ongoing pandemic. Visit www.chnk.org for more details. Or, for the free conversation with a therapist, call 1-844-YESCHNK. Welcome back to Dialed In with Tom Brenneman. Troy Kenneth Aikman was born in West Covina, California, outside of L.A. in 1966. At the age of 12, his family goes from L.A. to Henrietta, Oklahoma, where he graduates from high school, winning a state championship in... Typing. Troy Aikman originally played at the University of Oklahoma, but after breaking his ankle in 1985, he transferred to UCLA. 
Two years later, the number one pick in the NFL draft, he would spend his entire 12-year career with the Dallas Cowboys. Six-time Pro Bowler, three-time Super Bowl champion, Super Bowl MVP. Since 2001, nearly a generation now, uh, knows Troy Aikman is the lead analyst for the NFL on Fox. He's broadcast six Super Bowls and will do this weekend's NFC Championship game on Fox. He's in the Cowboys Ring of Honor, the College Football Hall of Fame, and was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, first time on the ballot in 2006. Troy Aikman, tell me one thing I just missed or didn't cover that you're most <laughs> proud of. <laughs> uh, I didn't hear you say anything about my two daughters. I'll that's get to I'm them in a minute. That, so, that's the most important yeah. thing I saved the best for last. Yeah. So that would be it. But, no, you you pretty much got it covered. You did good there. <laughs> you know, you, when you move as a kid from outside of L.A. and you're 12 years old, you go to Oklahoma. Now, the kids in today's world, and I have a senior in high school and a sophomore in high school, this would be the ultimate culture shock. Do you yeah. remember it being that way? Absolutely, yeah. I, uh, You know, living in California where I was in Cerritos, California, uh, uh, town outside of LA, probably 30 minutes outside of Los Angeles and, and, um, moving from there where I rode my bike, Tom, literally everywhere. It was like having my own car and transportation back in the day. And then I, when we moved to Oklahoma, we moved, we moved seven miles outside of town on 180 acres and, and we had farm responsibilities, you know, chores and things of that. So it was a huge, a huge change in lifestyle for me and a lot of responsibility that came with that. I hauled hay in the summers and helped vaccinate the cattle with my father. And we, we built our house when we moved the first day that we got there, my dad had left and gone before us. And then when I arrived, uh, I was on the roof the very first day, uh, roofing the, uh, uh, the house, shingling the, the roof. And, and I'd never even done it before. My dad taught me how, and then off we went, I rocked the house you know, all at the age of 12. And so there was a lot of growing up. My dad, my dad always treated me as though I was much older than I was from the time uh, I was really, really young, as far back as I can remember. And then that, you know, only moved things along a lot faster. And, but it was, it, it was, it was definitely a culture shock. But when, when I look back on it, it was such a great experience for me mm-hmm. to, to get to experience city life and then also get to experience rural life with the responsibilities that come with being on a farm. And I really am, am grateful that I got to do that. And I, and I really wish my own girls uh, had been given that opportunity. I didn't provide that for them, but uh, I think it was something that, that every kid should get to experience just to kind of realize the differences. Now, I, I said you won a state championship in typing. That means you learned on what is called a typewriter. Half of our population has no idea what a typewriter is. Who taught you, uh, a a California kid turned country boy, who taught Troy Aikman how to type? You know, it's interesting. My mom was a really good typist. She was a typesetter at the local newspaper in Henrietta when we moved to Oklahoma. And my junior year of high school – uh, I was in need of an elective course, and all of the girls that were—they were all a year ahead of me. They were all seniors. I was a junior. They were all taking 
typing. And so I thought, yeah, what the heck, you know, I'll take it. And I took it. Now you're talking, daddy. Yeah. Yeah. No, I took (laughs) it just so I'd be in the class with, uh, with all these girls and, and it just came really natural for me. I, I, I don't know if, uh, if that's inherited or not, but, but the skills came very easily for me and, and I excelled at it. And then, so my senior year, I really got along great with the, with the teacher, her brother, was a high school football coach at another town. And so I would finish my assignments early and I'd go up and sit with her at her desk and we would just spend the, the rest of the class talking about football and high school football and my game coming up or her brother's game at this other other high school. And, and so I took it my senior year typing too because I enjoyed it so much. And that's kind of how the, the whole contest came about, about me going off to, to winning, this, winning this championship but it, it really was the the best thing I probably did that sure. carried me throughout the rest of my life. I mean, there's so many people I know. I don't know if you can type or not, Tom, but no. so many people, friends of mine, cannot. And and yet with computers and, and all of that, keyboards, um, I can't imagine not being able to type the way that I do. And I've I've encouraged my girls to take typing. They, they've kind of dabbled in it a little bit, but they they, they – don't type either the way that the way that I do, but I'm really glad that I was able to do it. You're a big star uh, in Henrietta in high school. You sign with Oklahoma. Barry Switzer is the head coach there. Uh, was that just you know done deal? Like Ohio kid goes to Ohio State, Texas kid goes to Texas. You were going to Oklahoma because you know. For a lot of people that don't remember, they're running the wishbone there. They're having incredible success there. But Troy Aikman is the number one passing high school quarterback in the country. So, I mean, are you wrestling with that decision, or you're just like, okay, I'm going to Oklahoma? No, I actually thought I was going to go to Oklahoma State. Um, I, I, I really liked Oklahoma State. Uh, my, my junior year, I – felt that that's where I was going to go my entire senior year. I thought that's where I was going to go. And Jimmy Johnson was the head coach there for Oklahoma State at the time, and and I was his number one recruit. The first night that a head coach can come to visit a recruit's house, Jimmy Johnson was at my house in Henrietta, Oklahoma, with my mom and dad. And and I really felt that's where I was going. In fact, I, I took my visits. I wasn't highly recruited around the country. The other schools that I was looking at, besides Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, uh, I had visits to, to Tennessee and then the University of Missouri. I was planning on visiting Arkansas. Lou Holtz was there at the time. But right before my recruiting trip, Lou Holtz had left and went to Minnesota. And so Ken Hatfield took over as the head coach. And he called me up about a week before my visit and said, hey, I uh, just wanted to let you know we're going to change the offense. And we're going to go to the wishbone, and we just don't feel that, that you'll fit into our plans. And I said, hey, I really, really appreciate you telling me that, and I don't think so either, and thank you so much. So I only had four visits, but my third visit was to Oklahoma State. And I remember we were at Jimmy's house, me and a bunch of the other recruits, and Jimmy called me up to his office on the second floor, and, and I told him, I said, Coach, I'm coming to Oklahoma State. This is where I want to be, and looking forward to it. But with that being said, I said I want to take – my last visit to OU next weekend and Jimmy tried to talk me out of it and I just said you know I you only get to kind of go through this once and I hear it's I hear it's a great weekend and I just really want to experience it so he said okay so I went to OU the next weekend and it was just an entirely different feel 
because of the success that they'd had on a national level. And, and I remember driving home that, that afternoon after my visit to Oklahoma, and I was kind of wrestling with it all, and, and I just remember saying to myself, gosh, I don't know because I was coming from such a small town. I didn't know if I could play quarterback at that level or not. I said, but if I can't play quarterback, I, I, I'm confident I can play somewhere, and I want to play for a team that has the chance to, to win a national championship. And, and that was really the, uh, the whole reason as to making the decision then to, to attend Oklahoma. Now, I was being told by Barry Switzer and others that, that they were going to throw the football and stay in the I formation, which is what they had gone to with Marcus Dupree that year. And, and uh, so I went. And, uh, and then of course things changed. They, they stayed in the, the wishbone formation. I broke my ankle my, my junior year and then transferred. But to answer your question, no, it was, uh, it was actually a kind of a last minute decision to attend Oklahoma because I had planned on going to Oklahoma State. Now I, I will add that had I have gone to Oklahoma State, I actually never would have played for Jimmy Johnson there at right. Oklahoma State. Right. He, he left right after National Signing Day and took the head job at the University of Miami. Well, how ironic, right? Because you talk about, you know, you, you start some games your your first year. Your second year, you become the full-time guy. Uh, you got it going on. You get a big win over Texas, a couple of other big wins. Now here comes Miami, Jimmy yeah. Johnson. Um, you start off in that game red hot. You get hit by Jerome Brown. You break your ankle. Jameel Holloway yep. takes over as a starter. Uh, and Oklahoma goes on to win a national championship in, in an odd sort of way, because Holloway's going to come back the next year. Um, in an odd sort of way, does that become ultimately a blessing in a rather painful disguise? No question. There's no question. And, and, and diving into that just a little bit deeper, prior we were really struggling offensively with me as a starter that year. We, 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 our defense was outstanding. And, and we just weren't doing a whole lot on offense. And then right before we took the field against Miami that game, I was told by our offensive coordinator, he said, hey, um, I just want you to know, don't be surprised if we put Jamel in for a series here or there. And, and uh, it was the first I'd heard about it. And so I wasn't real happy about that, but I came out and was playing the best I'd played that season, uh, was throwing the ball well, we were moving the football and and then I broke my leg, and like you said, Jamel then did come in and led the team on to the national championship. And I just knew after that season when we went into spring training, they told me that it was going to be open competition, but th- there was no way. He had right. just led the team to the national championship. He was the offensive player of the year in the conference. And, uh, and that's when I decided to transfer. And then when I was transferring, Jimmy Johnson was recruiting me to attend the University of Miami. And uh, I ended up, of course, going to UCLA and turned Jimmy down then a second time after not going to Oklahoma State out of high school. And uh, and then, of course, later when I was coming out, then he becomes my head coach in Dallas. And then I end up playing for Barry Switzer again (laughs) at Dallas. And then before Chan Gailey was hired, after Barry Switzer got fired, uh, Terry Donahue had been offered the job who had been my head coach at UCLA. So it kind of has seemed like throughout my life that, that these figures, you know, whether it's Barry Switzer, Jimmy Johnson, Terry Donahue and others, they, they kind of keep emerging uh, at different times. And then of course, Jimmy being at Fox now and, 
us being at Fox, that uh, the relationship has continued, and that part of it's been really, really nice for me. You know, Troy, you mentioned the name uh, Terry Donahue. Uh, I had a chance to work in the booth with him for a couple of years, uh, yeah. broadcasting the Cotton Bowl. And, you, you know, um, I, I always felt, and tell me if you agree, I, I always felt his professional experience, good, bad, and different, that happened at the, at the, at the pro level with the 49ers took away from a guy who – was a great football coach and is a really good man. Yeah, he uh, he is one of my favorite people in life, Tom. I, I've said many times that that I don't hold anyone in higher regard than Terry Donahue, and and what he meant to me when I was playing for him is hard for me to even put into words. So what he was tough. He was tough on me, um, but I I, I never had a problem with anybody being tough with me as long as they were fair and honest. And, and he certainly was, and he's as, uh, he's as fine a person as I know. And, uh, I, I only wish I saw him more than, uh, mm-hmm. than I do, but yeah, he's a terrific guy. He did a, he did so much for, for UCLA and, and still does. He's still a tremendous ambassador. I know he went on to, to be the GM there for the 49ers for a few years and, now he's back in Balboa Island, and uh, you know he's in a real battle himself, uh, kind of fighting through some cancer right now. But he's an awesome guy and one of my favorite people. You're taking number one. Uh, Tom Landry is fired uh, by the new owner, a guy named Jerry Jones. He hires his yeah. old college <laughs> buddy from Oklahoma, Jimmy Johnson. You knew Jimmy. You've talked about that. Um, but Jerry Jones, first time you meet him, uh, and I don't say this in a bad way, because look, he's a wheeler dealer. Are, are, are you thinking yeah. good guy, con man? Well, I mean, what are you thinking when you meet him for the first time? <laughs> right? Well, um, it, you know, it's a that's a good question. I've never really been asked that question. I I don't recall really what my initial thoughts were of him. I, I do know that right from the beginning, he just had a he had an energy level that was unmatched. I mean, he just went at a pace that not many people could keep, and he still does. I mean, it's really incredible. And and I also remember, Tom, that, you know, here the Cowboys were the worst team in football. That year before I got there, they were 1-15, had not been very good for a number of years. Uh, they, were, they were not – uh, the attraction that that they've become to where they lead every sports cast off with uh, the Cowboys and whatever's happening with them and and so when I was going through negotiations with him, uh, I'll never forget it. He told my agent Lee Steinberg. He said, "Look, he says this is the Dallas Cowboys and and Troy should be willing to play for half of what he could get anywhere else to be a part of this organization." And I. And I and I thought you got to be kidding. I mean, that's the worst team in football, you know. But he really, he really had such a belief in the brand and the star power of the Dallas Cowboys uh, that that that's what he was talking about even before he had ever owned the team for one game. And uh, and then of course we all know what the impact is that he's had on our league and mm-hmm. and what they've gone on to do in Dallas and the success, successes that that we had there in the, in the mid nineties, it, it was really something. It was a great team with him and Jimmy Johnson during those years. You know, you start your rookie year by nose, you go, Oh, and 11 in year two. Now the band is starting to get put together. Uh, you and Michael Irvin are already there. 
Now comes along Emmett Smith, uh, decorated star, University of Florida, but certainly not the flashiest guy in the world, not the fastest guy in the world. When he shows up in, spring, in, in uh, training camp as a number one pick, does he look like a number one pick? He did to me, Tom, because we played him uh, in the Aloha Bowl uh, in Hawaii my senior year on Christmas Day. He was, I believe he was a true freshman uh, in that game, and he, he, we beat them, but, but he, he played really well. And I remember when we drafted him, that uh, one of my best friends was a linebacker on those teams. And, and he told me, he said, of all the teams we played, all the great running backs over the years, Emmett Smith was the toughest guy that he had ever tried to tackle. And I just always remembered that prior to Emmett showing up for camp and, the, you know, the offseason and all that. And, and so I, I knew he was a, a good player. I knew he could really help us. Of course, you never envision that a guy is going to go on and become the all-time great, right? Uh, and best guy to ever do it. Didn't didn't see that happening, especially as as bad as we were at the time. But uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I think when you look at some of those drafts with Jimmy Johnson, everybody talks about the Herschel Walker trade, but it's what Jimmy was able to do with those picks and Emmett Smith being, you know, one of those guys that we were able to get as a result of it that really transformed our team and allowed us to go from from worst to first in a matter of three years. 91, you start the year 6-4. and four. You get hurt against the Redskins. Steve Berline takes over. Uh, he leads the team to the playoffs. You beat the Bears in the first game. Then you're playing Detroit. Uh, you're down 17-6 at halftime. Jimmy puts you in the game. Now, you haven't played in probably a month and a half, almost two months, and it's your first playoff game ever. You don't win the game. But did you learn anything from being in a playoff game, the second half of that game, that would propel you for what was to come the next number of years? Yeah, not so much. I I don't know if I would answer that differently had I started that game, but I came in at the end of the first half in the two-minute drill, and like you said, hadn't played in a in a number of weeks, and uh, it, they, Detroit was good at the time. They had the momentum certainly at that point in the game as well. So it was not a uh, it was not a great experience for me. It was almost an impossible uh, experience to try to go in and, and and rally the team. So I didn't really gain I didn't gain much from that, from what I recall, and I didn't feel that the playoff atmosphere was all that unique. But I, again, I, I think I probably would have felt differently about it had I started that game and really got to experience what it was like at the start when, uh, before the game had really gotten away from us. All right, so 92, here we go. 13-3. and three. Um, Your team obviously goes to a whole new level. Now, from the outside looking in, you know, uh, the easiest thing in the world to say is, okay, now Aikman has been around for a few years. Uh, Emmett's been here for a couple of years. Irvin's been here a number of years. But, it, 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 you know, to go from good – to great, really great. Was there was there one or two guys that that really helped that team in maybe a way a lot of us don't know about go from good to great? Um, I, I think that team, Tom, when we knew coming off the 91 season, making it to the playoffs, uh, that we were a good team. Uh, Jimmy... I remember Jimmy would be doing interviews prior to the season in training camp, and, and he was saying uh, that 
you know, if we don't make it to the NFC Championship game, which would have, which would be better than we had done the year before, that the season would be a disappointment. And I was thinking, man, that seems that seems awful, awfully lofty for for us. And and I don't, you know, how good are we? And I I think I speak for the entire team when I say that that we knew we were good, we just didn't really know how good. And then as the season went along, I, we hit some stretches where we were putting together a lot of wins, and it felt good, you know, because. The year before we had we had we we started out at six and four and you know six and five and then we started winning like you said made it to the postseason but this that year in ninety two was a little bit different um, and it wasn't I I think the the best thing about that club was the fact that we didn't quite know how good we were and so winning to us was really embraced and we appreciated each and every one of those. And we had so much fun. And then we got into the postseason, and we expected to win our divisional game, which, which we did. And then we went on to play uh, the 49ers in candlestick. And they were really good at the time. We were 13 and three, and yet we were the number two seed. So they were 14 and two. Joe Montana was still on that team, but he was the backup to Steve Young. And, uh, but they were a veteran team. A lot of guys who had won Super Bowls for them. And we were still regarded as a team that was a year or two away that this was going to be the 49ers season. And I just remember going into that championship game and kind of thinking, uh, yeah, maybe if we can go out there and just play well and whatever happens, happens. And I didn't even give any thought to what happened if you won the game and that we'd be going to the Super Bowl. And, and uh, we played, played great and won the game. And the next thing we know, we are going to the Super Bowl. And But after that season – everything kind of changed because then there wasn't there wasn't this enjoyment of of winning because it was expected and 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 things every year after that was enjoyable but it was in a different way it it wasn't as the first time you do something is always so special and and meaningful and that's how it was for that 92 team and then after that uh, it was a little tougher. We were criticized when we didn't win by enough, and we knew what the objective was, and we knew if we didn't win the championship, it would be regarded as a failed season. So it's hard when every year you go into the regular season knowing that whatever happens for the next four months really doesn't matter. We're only going to be judged on what happens in January. And and for all good teams, eventually, that's that becomes the standard. We see it in today's game, of course, as well. There's, there's teams I can point to the the Bills are excited about being in the postseason, you know, and doing what they're doing. And a team like Green Bay, well, uh, if they don't get to the Super Bowl, then then their season will look a lot differently than it would be for, like, the Cleveland Browns. That game, the Super Bowl, you played that game against Buffalo. You put up 52 points on them. You blow them out of the gym. You're playing in your collegiate home stadium of the Rose Bowl. Um, you throw four touchdowns, you go 22 of 30. You go back and look at some of the video, uh, Troy Aikman, of some of those throws you made. Um, you know, it's unfair to ask anybody if they feel like it was the best game they ever played. But, but, but did you just have it that day on that stage like maybe you could never hope for any better than that? Yeah, it was uh, – you know, when we beat – when we beat 49ers in the championship game and you're, and then you realize you're going to the Super Bowl, I hadn't even been in the locker room after that game 10 minutes. And it hit me that, man, this is great, but it means nothing if, if we don't win this game in two weeks in the Super Bowl. And, and there, for a quarterback, there's a lot of pressure that comes with being in the Super Bowl sure. because 
there's always pressure to go out and play well to help your team. But in a Super Bowl game, you just don't want to have a performance because that game's forever archived. Whatever your performance is, it's going to always be remembered and it's going to always be talked about. And so there's a lot of pressure that comes with that. The good thing for me was, yes, I did get to play in the stadium where I played collegiately for UCLA, a, a stadium obviously I was very familiar with. But also during that week, Tom, I, I practiced, our team practiced at UCLA. And, wow. and we were in the locker room there at UCLA. So everything about that week was familiar to me. And so with that, there was a tremendous amount of comfort. And I remember uh, the game in the morning of and, and waking up and going to the stadium. And usually I was a little anxious, a little nervous before games. I, I was totally at peace uh, before that game and relaxed. And it didn't feel too big or anything like that. And, and then the game, of course, unfolded the way that it did. And the, and the game that I had personally and being voted the MVP, it was just what I'm probably most proud of for my career is that in the I played my best games on the biggest stage, yep. and and that's what I'm most proud of. You know, when the games mattered most, you know, I tended uh, to play my best, and uh, and that's what you want. I mean, that's what you want to be known for, and uh, and it's what I'm most proud of for sure. Ninety three, you win it again. Ninety four, Jimmy Johnson gets fired, and here comes your old buddy Barry Switzer. Um, I'm not asking you, Troy, if it was a good decision or a bad decision. Okay, what I'm asking you is, all things considered, maybe what was going on in the locker room, maybe the tension between owner and coach, the whole macro picture, was it the right decision? Uh, well, I think the I think the wrong decision took place in terms of Jimmy not being our head coach. Okay. Um, you know, I think that too. I think once that happened, then I didn't feel like it was the wrong decision when the decision was made. I had known Barry Switzer, of course, from Oklahoma, uh, but the coach that I knew at OU was the was a different version of the head coach that we got in Dallas. He had been out of coaching for a number of years. He had never coached in the NFL, uh, and I think that I think Barry came in thinking that well, just don't mess it up. You know, this team's good enough. Just let them kind of do their thing and and don't let me get in the way of it. And I just don't think in the NFL, probably at any level, that that really works. And and so over time, over a few years, we began to not be as good a football team as we had been. But I think the, the disappointing thing for me and for all of my teammates is that I just remember vividly Jimmy would talk to the team right around the Pro Bowl time when the boats came out and you'd find out what players made the Pro Bowl. And there was always a one or two, three players on it on the team that were disappointed that they didn't make the Pro Bowl. And Jimmy would always say to us, Hey, look, you know, if, if we have team success, if our team achieves what we hope to achieve, there'll be enough success for everybody to go around. And, and so I just always remembered hearing that. And then, Though the two guys that were the ultimate leaders of our team, the owner Jerry Jones and the head coach Jimmy Johnson, the fact that they couldn't put their egos aside for the good of the team uh, is what really disappointed me because I know that I did 
and I know that Irvin did, and I know that Emmett did, and I know a lot of other players that did. And, uh, and, and we, we all sacrificed to some level, some more than others, in order for our team to have the ultimate success. And that was what was important to us because we were a team, and that's why we were as good as we were. But the two leaders, you know, they couldn't. And, uh, and so to this day, I think that's – when I look back on it, I understand conflicts happen, things end, and people go on. But the fact that egos are the reasons why this didn't work out uh, is the biggest disappointment to me of all. You go on to play uh, a, a number of more seasons. Uh, you start, Troy, to have a number of concussions. Now, back in those days, it was not nearly front and center like it is today. Um, I think I read you had as many as 10, but I think we all could probably agree it might be double, triple, quadruple that number. Um, Do you wake up mornings worried about CTE? Well, I would say I I don't think I had 10. I I, I think I probably had seven or eight, uh, which is is negligible. Um, and, and, And of those, I would say that two of them were severe. And I say that with the understanding that, that all head injury is serious. So um, I'm not trying to minimize it whatsoever. No. But when I, when I left the game, I always felt that there was a lot of attention. Whenever anyone talked about concussions, they, they pointed to myself and they pointed to Steve Young, who also retired a year before me due to concussions. And, um, and I always felt that, man, if, if, if I had seven or eight or ten or whatever the number was, I always thought that that probably pales in comparison to a lot of other players, um, guys who hit with their heads on every single play. I mean, I just couldn't, for the life of me, think that 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 I had had more head trauma than some other players, most other players that had suited up and played for any length of time in the National Football League. And as we found out, that that has uh, that now is what is true. You know, people point to the subconcussive hits for offensive linemen. You think of fullbacks, Daryl Johnston, and you know him leading through the hole for Emmett Smith on every single play. And and so I always thought that I got out of it pretty good. And I and I believe that now more than I did even at the time. But no, I, I guess. Um, I, I, well, I should say I I I'd be lying if I said I never think about it. But I would also tell you that. There's never been a moment in my life where I thought for a second that that there's something wrong or that I've been impacted by my playing days with the Cowboys. And I think that the job, as you, you know better than I do, the job that we have as broadcasters and just have, having to recite information mm-hmm. and players' names and, and all the things that you just have to be able to recall at a moment's notice, uh, I, I don't know if that helps helps prevent some of those things I don't know if it helps keep me keep my mind active and and working I don't know what it is but uh I'm 54 years old and I've not had anything to suggest uh that man something's just not quite right and I've talked to a number of former teammates and people that I played uh against and they've shared with me some some situations that they feel that you know, maybe they're slipping a little bit. It's a real concern, but I haven't had those moments, and, and I'm very grateful for yeah, that. Thank God for that. All right, so you go into broadcasting with Fox. You're in a three-man booth with Joe Buck and Chris Collinsworth. Are you any good? I mean, Troy Aikman's <laughs> supposed to be good at everything, right? I mean, you know, let's, let's be honest about it. You're Troy Aikman. Yeah. Oh, hell yeah, I was good. What are you talking about? 
<laughs> no, I don't know. You know, I worked with Moose my first year uh, with Dick Stockton and Daryl Johnson for one year. And then, and Dick Stockton, you know, if, if I had to put into a kind of a nutshell the, the, the reasons for my successes in life, you know, at the top of that list would be being around good people. And it, it certainly was the case in my playing career. And then to go right into the broadcast booth and get to work alongside a real pro like Dick Stockton and then a former teammate in Daryl Johnston, it was, it was great. And Dick took the time to, to work with me and tell me what I needed to know. And, and I only got a year with him, but it was a lot of fun. And then got paired, as you said, with Collinsworth and, and Joe when Madden and Summerall left. And, and that was a good experience for me, too. It was hard for me to be in a three-man booth. I knew that right away, even when I was working with Moose. That that's a challenge for the analyst when he's working alongside another mm-hmm. co-analyst. And but yet I learned a lot from Chris, who had been in broadcasting for a number of years uh, ahead of me, and uh, and they were good. I mean, it, it, you're only as good as the people around you, and uh, and I've had that throughout this career as well. So that's been a real blessing for me. You've owned part of a baseball team, the San Diego Padres. You've owned a NASCAR team. Why not a football team or part owner of a football team? Um, well, you know, it's interesting that I, that I was part of a group, uh, that, that, that had a significant bid for the Buffalo Bills. Um, and then we came in, I believe second, uh, in, in that bid and, and, I uh, can't recall the name now of the owner in Buffalo, but he, he now, own, he owns a team now. And that's when we, that's when we didn't get it. So I have been involved in, uh, involved in an ownership group. There was another opportunity that, that, that. I was involved with another group that was trying. So it hasn't been from a lack of effort, but, uh, you know, those are a little tougher to come by. And the, the economics of that deal has been a little bit different than the other opportunities that I've been involved with in baseball and, and then with NASCAR. But uh, that's been the biggest reason. I think a lot of people, a lot of former players always kind of aspire to, to be on the ownership side of things or be in the front office and, I guess I'm no different than that, but uh, the opportunity, although we've gotten close, just hasn't really uh, been there for me. You know, Troy, I've heard players uh, that are very successful, and now they move on to other businesses. And in your business, that's broadcasting, and you're involved in many, many other things, but but you're in the broadcasting business. And, And I've heard so many of these guys say they miss the scoreboard, uh, where something, a scoreboard, rather than someone, uh, your boss, co-worker, tells you if you're doing a good job or not. Are you good enough or not? Do you miss the scoreboard? I don't as much now. I did. I did a lot when I first got into broadcasting, and I'll never forget it. I don't know if I've ever shared this story with you, but we called the Giants-Patriots game there in Arizona. It was the Tyree catch. Uh, It was Eli's. Super Bowl and uh, and it was a, it was a huge finish. You know, it was a big game and and uh, I didn't feel like going to the Fox party uh, after the game. I went back to my hotel. My wife and I at the time uh, went and had had dinner. I said, let's just stay here. I don't really feel like going to the party and and uh, so we're eating and Ron Jaworski was in the restaurant having dinner as well and he comes over and says, man, how about that game? That was uh, that was unbelievable and he. I said, yeah, it was pretty good. And he said, oh, man, that catch by David Tyree. And I said, no, nah, it was, yeah, it was good. He goes, and, and he could tell that I wasn't quite as excited about it all as he was. And 
And he said, what's wrong? And I said, uh, I don't know, Jaws. I said, you know, I've played in this game. I said, I've won this game. I said, if I had played it and won it, I said, I'd be as happy as anybody in the world. I'd be celebrating. I mean, that's what I did for the three championships that we won. But, I mean, all I did was talk about it. I didn't do anything. And and he kind of looked at me funny and walked off. And I remember telling my wife, I just said, uh, you know, I said, this, this could very well be the biggest game that I ever call in, in my career as a broadcaster. And yet, I, I, I don't have any satisfaction from it you know i don't feel anything Mm -hmm. and i said if this is if i'm at the pinnacle of 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 this profession and this is how i feel i I, maybe i'm in the wrong business and it was a real depressing moment for me and and, but i will tell you i don't know why it switched i don't know why it changed maybe i just needed kind of that moment uh to really put it into proper perspective but but after that uh all of a sudden i had total fulfillment and enjoyment from the job and I've never felt that low since you know and now now I'm able to walk out of a booth after a game and I know if I've done a good job I know if we've done a good job and I feel good about it and I know when I haven't done a good job and when I'm down about it so I I I still I still do get the highs and lows from the profession not not to the extent that I got as a player uh but I I think there's always a part of you that wants that scoreboard but I've learned to be able to kind of present the scoreboard of my, my own. And I, and, I, and, I, and I feel that I'm objective about it, uh, but it's all a matter of opinion. I mean, as you know, in this business, mm-hmm. one person thinks you're good, the other person thinks you're terrible, and, need, and no one's right or wrong in that assessment. So that, that's, the, that's the hard part for me. I always say back when I played, you know, that Joe Montana could go out in a game and not play so well. But everybody knew he was a great player. You know, I mean, you, you, you just knew it based on what he had done in the past. In our business, you don't really get that quite the same way. It's much different. And uh, uh, so from that standpoint, it is, it is unique. But I, but I don't need the scoreboard the way I thought that I did at one time in my career. I said we talk uh, the best for last. Um, you have had basically full-time custody of your two daughters. Uh, You have one daughter in college, another daughter uh, thinking about where to go to college. Uh, You've had them since they were very, very young. Anybody out there who is listening that has raised a daughter, and we're blessed to have a daughter who's a senior in high school, and thank God she's doing great. Um, But being a single dad uh, for nearly their entire upbringing, um. You know, having conversations with daughters and girls, uh, it it can be the most rewarding time of your life. Uh, It can be the toughest part of your life. For you and for them, um, you know, how have you navigated, Troy, and and survived, um, you know, those conversations? I mean, let's face it, you know, uh, when you're talking uh, to a son, which you don't have, um, you know, I talk to my son very differently on certain things because I can relate to him man to man, man to boy, man to child. Uh, man to woman is a whole different set of circumstances, <laughs> as you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, what's that been like? It's been awesome. I mean, it's been awesome. And I, I don't have a son, so I, I, I can't compare it the way that, that you're able to, Tom. But uh, I, I'm not having any more kids, but if I were to, I'd want more girls. I, I really, I, I love the father daughter relationship. And, 
my girls, I've been blessed that they've never given me one ounce of trouble. Uh, they're, they're good girls. Uh, they do the right thing most of the time and, and they love their dad and they treat me exceptionally well. Uh, they listen to me when I tell them, you know, what the boundaries are. Uh, I've learned a lot from them. Uh, I, I've learned that, that, that I've, I need to be more flexible in some ways where, where I'm accustomed to being a little bit more rigid in my points of view. But what I've tried to do with my girls is just allow them a platform to where they can communicate with me and, and to where I can hear them out, hear their side of the story, hear their perspective on why they feel that they should be able to do whatever. And, and then I evaluate that. And I've, I've, I, I would say that, uh, much like my playing career, I'm very much a disciplinarian. Uh, and I'm like that as a father, I'm, I'm, I'm strict in, in what I expect. Uh, we certainly have rules, but I try not to go overboard with those. And, uh, and it's, and it's worked well. I mean, I think that they understand kind of what the standards are and what the expectations are. And, uh, it's been, it's been really good. I mean, we came on to this talking about it and it really is, uh, it's my greatest achievement. And it's really the only achievement that matters to me it, it, in, it, in every sense. I mean, everything else that's happened in my life, whether it's the Super Bowls or owning these franchises, baseball and NASCAR, you know, any number of things. It just all those things I'm really proud of. But our legacy is going to be told by our kids and, and the impact that we make on our kids is really and, and others, I mean, for your spouse and your friends, but the people who know you, and no one knows you as well as your children do, they're the ones who really tell your story, not the fans who followed my career when I played, and, you know, I can't do no wrong in a lot of those fans' eyes. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be my girls. And so uh, I, I, I'm, I love the relationship. I'm proud of them. And I can't wait for the next 25, 30 years, how many years I have left and seeing how they mature and they have families of their own and what kind of moms they, they uh, grow up to be. Well, I know one thing in the, uh, the number of times I've happened to be around you and a chance for us to broadcast together, uh, those girls are going to be just fine and they're going to be great uh, wives and great mothers one day. And, 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 you know, look, I, I'm not trying to sound corny about it because I've been around you enough to know and, and been with you in a meeting room where, you know, like every dad, you get the call from your 15, 16, 17 year old daughter, dad, why can't I spend the night tonight at somebody's house? And, you know, and the way you handle those things and, and, uh, Troy, you're, I said at the beginning, uh, before we went on, um, you know, for those of us who have been fortunate enough to get to know you a little bit, um, you know, just the way you handle yourself in, in, in every way. And, and I don't mean just professionally, but the way, you know, you, you, you treat the, the guy who might be, you know, working security at a stadium or the guy who's just making sure that, you know, whatever you need in a booth is, is, is treated with respect. And, and the way you handle that and, and the way you treat members of your crew on, on, at Fox, and, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's been a joy uh, and an honor and a pleasure to watch it. And uh, and I'm thankful for it every single day. And I thank you for your time today. This has been great. It's been awesome, Tom. And I'm, uh, the feelings are mutual. I mean, you're a wonderful uh, parent to your children, the same thing. And, 
And it's been an honor getting to know you, and I look forward to working with you some more down the road. Well, and I appreciate you having me on your show today. I appreciate that. My, 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 my friend, good luck in the NFC Championship game this weekend. We didn't get to that, and I don't care. I like the other stuff better. <laughs> good luck this week, it. my man. Thank you, buddy. All right. Troy Aikman, our guest, dialed in with Tom Brenneman. We thank each and every one of you for joining us. Next week, we will have Chris Spielman. Former star linebacker at Massillon High School, Ohio State, and in the NFL, and now the president of the Detroit Lions. So we'll look forward to catching you again next week on Dialed In. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.